Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello. And welcome to the New Books Network, New Books in History. I'm your host, R. Grant Kleiser. With me today is Dr. Andrew Kettler, who will be talking about his recent publication entitled The Smell of Slavery, Olfactory Racism and the Atlantic World, out now via Cambridge University Press. Dr. Kettler is currently a Mason Getty Fellow for the University of California, Los Angeles, Center for 17th and 18th Century Studies at the William Andrews Clark Memorial Library. He received his PhD in history from the University of South Carolina in 2017. (laughs) Dr. Kettler is a book review editor for H. Slavery and Sound Studies, and especially of interest to our listeners, he publishes an Atlantic Studies podcast of note blog available through H. Atlantic. His new book, the Smell of Slavery charts the, charts the impact smell had on the making of race and justifications for enslavement in the Atlantic world, how the European biological function of smell changed through embodied cultural knowledge and racial othering, and moments in which enslaved and free people of African descent use smell to resist processes of enslavement and capitalistic exploitation. Dr. Kettler, welcome to the show, and congratulations on this new and engaging work. Thanks so much. So first off, I know that most of our listeners probably won't be familiar with the term olfactory racism that you use in your title. So first, can you just explain briefly what you mean by that term? Olfactory racism uh, implies that the sense of smell, uh, like sight or hearing, can be racialized that it's not simply the sight of a black body or hearing a culturally constructed idea of a black voice, but also that smell can be culturally constructed to perceive uh, blackness as something that exists when truly race, as uh, academics understand it, is a social construct that does not exist in the same way as um, other material objects. Uh, so we, we think of smell and this concept of olfactory racism as something deeply embodied in kind of the old, the oldest parts of the brain had smell, the alligator brain had smell. And in that, we kind of have a deep engagement with smell that ties us to memory and culture and society that links very heavily with racialization. Certainly. So on that note, how did you come to think of smell as a lens to understand race? You know, race, as you said, is something we naturally associate, I think, mainly with, with sight. But what, what inspired you to study olfactory racism, and how did you come to, to write this book? Uh, there's a, a wide literature, a deep literature. It's not really historical literature, but there's a deep philosoph- philosophical literature on uh, smelling and othering, especially in anthropology and in philosophy. And it kind of ties this idea that cultures, anytime any culture meets, there's an odor of the other. 
whether it's a positive odor or the other or a negative odor or the other, kind of through that anthropological lens and that philosophical lens, I kind of look, started looking deep in uh, my master's thesis about um, ties between how early colonists, especially English colonists to North America, engaged with concepts of Native American senses of smell and how they judged Native Americans uh, smelling poorly or positively in a lot of senses. And there was a great change in that Native American uh, understanding of how the Native American bodies smelled and the, how the English perceived the Native American as smelling. They're smelling extremely poorly at, when they first encountered this odor of the other, um, even though Native Americans bathed and English persons did not. But that poor smell of Native Americans that English initially perceived changed over time. The more civilized the English understood Native Americans to be, especially in the Northeast, uh, the more that smell went away. And it kind of led me into a, a deeper understanding of how much language and culture could actually invade the function of the body. And that those smells became deeply biological to the people smelling them, but they were cultural constructs that had been going back generations. Of course. Could you briefly describe your methodology? I mean, smell is certainly fleeting, of course. It's hard to know exactly what things smelled like in the past, although, of course, your work is more about the perceptions of smell. But also, given almost half of your book describes moments of African and people of African descent resisting um, through the process of, of smell, uh, you must have run into a problem that many scholars of this topic face, namely a dearth of written sources by your subjects. So how did you overcome these challenges and work with these problems? Um, I, I push hard against any idea of the discipline uh, initially. I'm not, a, uh, I'm not a big fan of mm -hmm. kind of things being disciplined into history or literature or anthropology or philosophy. Interdisciplinarity uh, should not mean kind of taking these disciplines and ramming them together. It should be you look at a source and whatever field offers the right method to analyze that source, then you can you can apply it. So I use anthropological methods when I'm talking about kind of African um, ethnic cultures prior to European contact. Um, I use literary methods uh, from lit crit to talk about uh, English concepts through the stage, through Shakespeare, through Thomas Decker, through other playwrights. Um, I use literary methods to talk about uh, Victorian literature and how they created an, an, uh, an African with an identity that could invade white consciousness. So I move very much towards multidisciplinarity in really every chapter is multidisciplinary. Um, specifically regarding the African sources, uh, I, I have a, a wide section in that third chapter about the application of anachronism as a potent weapon to overcome the archive. So the archive is kind of any grad student kind of understands um, when talking about slavery is extremely biased. It's extremely confused. The archive as it existed is a Western archive. You read so you, every source you get when you go to Kew, when you go to the islands to study slavery in the primary sources, you must read against the grain. You have to read against the grain of what the colonizers were writing about slavery. So in, in that essence, you read against the grain in that moment synchronically, but there's a temporal problem because you can't get at many African voices in that time because African voices in that time were suppressed. So a lot of scholars apply anachronistic sources from 19th century, even the 20th century, to talk about the cultures that existed during the slave trade and prior to the slave trade. This, of course, is problematic in a lot of ways because it can recreate the colonialist idea of a static Africa that you can, uh, that Africa did never change, never changed. African cultures never changed. Europeans had to come in and create an impetus for change, right? That, the, um, that idea of the static Africa, but it, if you apply it in a certain way, which I believe I have, you can take those anachronistic sources from the 19th century, 20th and the 20th century, and you can use them as weapons and avoid that kind of problematic static Africa. I think in uh, my third chapter, talking about smelling in Africa uh, prior to slave trade, during the slave trade, I think I've been able to draw connections between even 20th century literature, uh, a true based 20th century literature, where he's writing very similar things to what to the cultural rituals that were happening in sources 
uh, from the 16th century, from people like CRVO or, um, or Leo Africanus. So these, there's connections that exist diachronically and multi-temporally, not simply on the normal timeline, but multi-temporally, where you can use that anachronism as a weapon against the colonized archive. Certainly. So moving on to the meat of your work, um, first off, how did Europeans initially portray and stereotype African sense? So the, in the initial conception, uh, as I have it, it is kind of, uh, it's a wondrous experience called the cultural contact in the contact zone is very wondrous. It's, it's focused on cultural difference. So I look at people like Duarte Lopez or Alonso de Sandoval, uh, their African travel narratives and their, their, uh, uh, encounters with Africans throughout the Atlantic world in the 16th and early 17th century. And most of those writings are talking about cultural difference. They're talking about uh, the smell of fishes that are cooked or the smell of different perfumes or the way that different groups made soap or uh, even when negative smells are talking about the smelly roots that people wore on bodies uh, in rituals, right? These are cultural ideas. They're not in the body, right? So that initial conception is cultural. It can be extremely negative and it can be extremely othering, but it's, it's cultural and it allows for Africans to be considered human with just with a different culture, uh, a different uh, fruit from the same tree. But when it starts to turn is kind of with this uh, metropolitan effort, uh, subconscious mostly, but also conscious at times in the late 16th, early 17th century, that starts to take these cultural differences from these people who are on the ground in Africa and in the Atlantic world, uh, South America, especially. And it takes those cultural ideas and it moves them into embodied ideas that the smell is not a cultural idea, cultural material, but becomes embodied in the African as a flat character on the stage or on the page or on the Reformation pulpit. So we have this, African that emerges in the 17th century, especially within English literature, different forms of English literature and other European literature, but especially English literature in this case, where the African cannot lose that smell by shedding that cultural totem. So it becomes, it moves from that cultural idea which, where change can happen, where uh, Africans can take on a different culture and the smell would go away to a different form of embodied racism where this African then takes on that smell and it's a biological negative in the English conception. And as a follow-up to that, you, you talk a bit about how the theory of miasma of foul, foul air as a source of sickness um, was important in this process. Can you explain more about how, what miasma, how miasma played a role in this? So miasma theory is the idea that uh, decaying particles, especially in vegetal or animal materials, are what cause disease. This has uh, been disproven essentially uh, by bacterial ideas of the 19th century. Um, but the original idea of how disease transmitted through miasma theory was vegetal materials decayed in the streets. The, that stuff got in the air. And it hit the nose or the mouth, and that's how people became sick. Um, the idea really gets great force in the late 17th century through the Royal Society, especially through the work of Robert Boyle and Richard Mead. Um, but it existed much prior. And so it was in the Renaissance. People talked about miasma as, as something that could uh, invade in the Renaissance earlier in uh, England and even in the earlier uh, Italian Renaissance. So the, the idea of miasma theory had a long trajectory, but really came to force academically in the late 17th century with uh, Robert Boyle uh, writing Suspicions, in, uh, Suspicions of the Air. Uh, it's kind of the short form of that title. And the idea is that, uh, the idea racially that I argue is that miasma becomes black person, becomes the African. That for English culture in the Atlantic world, the African becomes a contagion becomes miasmic in part because of this idea of smell that the African in, 
can change the function of the English body, that being in Africa can change the function of the English body. This old English idea of going native, which was very essential in early English contact with North America, the fear of going native. Um, and this all ties in with ideas of, of uh, climatology and especially moral climatology, the idea that the climate in which a culture emerges from sets the morals of that culture as well. And this turns to, in, in the second chapter, about uh, an idea that ties kind of back to an old racist tradition um, that I kind of see emerging out of these debates of miasma theory and moral climatology in the early 19th century, that because Africa was, in essence, an Eden to European conceptions, the abundance of food created a lack of work ethic among Africans. It's an absurdity, of course, um, but this is the idea that emerges in the 19th century, that Africans don't work hard. Need, they need to be slaves because uh, Africa offered them everything and all they had to do was walk around and just pick fruit off the tree and, and live kind of uh, just have whatever they wanted in their life. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, everything was given to them, so they never had to work. Yeah. It's, a, it's a ridiculous idea. But mm-hmm. it, was, it became the main idea. People like, uh, like Bedford Pym, who I, who is a famous uh, English explorer, kind of important in the construction of Panama Canal, set railroads across Central America, really a hero of the British Empire. He wrote these two extremely racist tracts running on these ideas that uh, there's an infection of blackness in, in the Caribbean and in Central America that forces that, that it doesn't force, but it just makes Africans unwilling to work unless they're whipped or forced to work or enslaved. So the, this idea takes, it moves diachronically in a lot of different directions, but it kind of, it's based in miasma theory and it kind of moves in this kind of through climatology, through ideas of monogenesis into ideas of polygenesis. And it builds this racism on top, more racism on top of more racism on top of more racism that Mm -hmm. justifies different forms of slavery and the violence inherent in slavery. Mm -hmm. So you've, you've touched on this a bit, but you have this great line on page 26 in which you state, quote, Europeans tricked their profiteering noses into a false consciousness to smell the African as a pungent other. So I was wondering, you keep on talking about in this book about how the Africa, sorry, the European nose changed in this process. Can you describe more about how this worked, how sort of a biological change happened through uh, this cultural process? Yeah, this is uh, inherently linguistic. It kind of it goes along with a lot of different historical philosophical theories, especially Bordeaux, uh, Foucault, it, and it it and it rests on the field of sensory studies in general. Uh, sensory studies in general argues that over long periods of time, there are changes in the five sense hierarchy or the six sense hierarchy, however many senses uh, you want to say there are. Um, but in the five sense hierarchy, in this sense, there's changes in the function of both what becomes more prominent and in that prominence, how it functions. So uh, for the original five sense hierarchy of Aristotle, you have sight at the top, you have touch in the middle, but you, but touches, you have sight hearing and then touch in the middle, but touch is also considered the most important because all uh, senses touch uh, in some way they have a form of touching. Right. So there's, and then the lower senses are um, taste and smell. Mm-hmm. Which are which are actually extremely combined. Most of what we're tasting, we're actually smelling. It's about eighty percent of what we taste is actually uh, smelling up through the uh, the back of our mouth, the retronasal uh, route to our uh, olfactory membranes. Mm-hmm. So those lower senses in the medieval era, a lot of scholars have talked about this, uh, especially Lucien Febvre, who was kind of the first of the sensory studies scholars to really get into this. He wasn't have, have been called that at the time. He was an all, an all scholar. Uh, but Lucien Febvre has this great work on uh, Rabelais. And he talked about how the language that is used to talk about the senses informs the very function of those senses. All right. So it changes how the perception of those of material shifts based on the language used in the culture to talk about that material. So we have, um, a great work by Alain Corban called The Foul and the Fragrant, the standard uh, work in the field of olfactory studies, uh, The Foul and the Fragrant. And Corban talked about this 
concept using miasma theory um, in talking about Paris in the 19th century and the language and also the uh, infrastructure used to change the meanings of foul and fragrant. Right? And there's been a lot of work by other scholars, uh, Constance Classen, David Howes, uh, Anthony Sinat wrote a book called Aroma. And in that book, it talks about the changing uh, smells according to different objects over time. Uh, how the rose became beautiful smelling when it was originally uh, considered mm-hmm. to be poor smelling. Um, the, how uh, initially when uh, Europeans got to the New World, uh, tomatoes, had, uh, tomatoes had never been in Europe prior. They were encountering nightshade vegetables like tomatoes and or nightshade fruits like tomatoes. And they hated the taste and they hated the smell. They were afraid of the tomato. But over time, that changes because the language used to discuss it changes. So the language then changes the function of the body to perceive things in certain ways. Language has the power in this essence to change um, the function of the five sense sensorium. We call it the sensorium um, and the function of the body in general. Disgust is a major part of this that disgust can be educated upon a culture to then feel disgust through the senses, through the affective emotions and through um, the body at other objects. So someone in one culture might judge um, cannibalism, let's say it to be absolutely abhorrent. Mm -hmm. Whereas someone in another culture, they might prize cannibalism as a spiritual uh, engagement with kind of bringing the other into a different uh, tribe or nation. Whereas someone might feel the embodiment watching cannibalism and just throw up or, or keel mm-hmm. over in another culture is prized. And that's the language and texts and symbols in those cultures that define how we experience disgust and how we experience all of our senses. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. Um, moving on to the, so the second half of your book on the African and people of African descent aspect. Can you talk a little bit more about how smell, rather than just becoming a process of racial othering, became a source of African resistance to the processes of the slave trade and enslavement? Yeah, so the first half of the book is about materialism. Mm -hmm. It's about cultural Marxism. It it relies on ideas of cultural Marxism to talk Mm -hmm. about a false consciousness of smelling, something that did not exist. African bodies did not smell differently inherently. They might smell differently because they were worked in certain fields harder or not given uh, certain soaps to clean themselves or clean clothes. Those different smells might have existed, but it wasn't a biological smell difference that the Europeans, that many Europeans conceived it as. Mm -hmm. So the first half of the book is about dialectical materialism and false consciousness. The second half of the book is about materialism and real consciousness. And that's why I talk about where I talk about Africans, not because they aren't accessing capitalism. Some are, but the majority in the Atlantic world, especially in the Atlantic slave trade, are not accessing capitalism. They're not being invaded by the fetish. They're not being altered by the materialism of capitalism to have false consciousness. So their experiences with material objects through the senses are much more natural, are less invaded by the fetish and altered into false consciousness. So I I discuss uh, more European travel narratives where I'm talking uh, about Africans rituals, cultural rituals, ethnic rituals, uh, specific. It's not African, it's African ethnic rituals, right? That's Mm -hmm. it's different nations within Africa, but to come to it, to come to terms with that, I I had to apply kind of an essentialized Africa because the sources just aren't there to talk about, the smell in Cameroon or the smell in uh, the mm-hmm. Congo. It, it, it's, it's, uh, there's not enough sources for that. So it becomes an essentialized Africa in a time when, of course, as academics understand, Africa did not exist in that sense. Right? It, it, was a, it was a concept, a European concept. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yes and so for instance i mean you talk a lot about moments of spiritualism of obeya of other moments in which smell becomes a very important process um to sort of african sense of sense of identity and um sense of agency could you describe a couple of moments where where smell becomes an important part of that African sense of, of agency and um, individualism and resistance against uh, enslavement. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So the resistance I, I for resistance methods wise, I, I go back to, uh, to the creolization, social death agency debate. And I side essentially with different forms of agency, African agency, African survivals and creolization Uh through the ideas of James Scott, talking about hidden transcripts and weapons of the week. And I, I bring out different rituals, which I discovered throughout the Atlantic world that involved uh, the olfactory. And it's not where the olfactory is. Uh, there's not a, a band of soldiers attacking another group or attacking their slaveholders because of a smell. Mm-hmm. Right? This is not kind of the, the resistance of 1741 or the resistance of, of Saint-Domingue. This is a, mm-hmm. a, a this is everyday resistance, um, mm-hmm. which can, of course, every the abundance of a critical mass of everyday resistance does lead to those greater, uh, greater forms of resistance, grand marinage. Mm-hmm. So what uh, a few of the best examples relate to dogs that you have European cultures, especially the uh, English and the American South, and then the Eng- and then the Americans who t- who come into the American South uh, after the Revolution, who are building up a an infrastructure for a massive dog trade based on smelling uh, African bodies that run. And there's this is not simply an uh, English or, or Anglo American concept. This is uh, some of the best dogs of the time, considered the best dogs of the time, were called Cuban bloodhounds because they were bred in, in Cuba. They were shipped um, throughout the Atlantic world. Uh, especially North and these dogs and they're written about in uncle Tom's cabin, uh, Frederick Douglass and his uh, slave narrative writes about them. Solomon Northrop writes about them and his slave narrative. So I applied these slave narratives and especially the FWP narratives to read about these slaves escaping slaves and free people uh, escaping dogs through the sense of smell, understanding that dogs have been trained to smell them through smell but then understanding ways to trick that through uh, hot pepper on the feet or uh, the Indian turnip or what are called uh, asafetida or acrophetidae bags. Where you had a bag of something that smelled horrible uh, that then you could, you could throw off. Uh, Northrop himself uh, hid in a bayou, stayed underwater in a bayou uh, to hide from dogs. And then when the dog finally did catch him uh, in a later aspect of his work. He sliced the dog's uh, head with a, um, with a machete down the middle. Mm-hmm. So we have uh, dogs as one aspect and we have Obeya, uh, which you mentioned as an aspect. Mm-hmm. One interesting case of Obeya, uh, which Randy Brown, I think is the first person to discover it, but I applied in my work as well because it's so uh, olfactorily important, um, is two uh, Obeya men had, would, had a game of wits about smelling where one of them was making uh, powders to poison um, and the powders uh, smelled a certain way. Uh, you would, of course, wouldn't want your poison to smell, but the, this poison did. <laughs> and, uh, and another Obeya man hired by the slavers would go to different plantations and smell out. They call it smelling out um, the, the poison of that, uh, of that um, Obeya doctor or Obeya man who was trying to uh, help the slave community. So it often became a battle of wits between these Obeya men where they had some cultural capital with the masters and they would often be higher 
on the hierarchy within the slave system where they could kind of engage in these battles against other Obeya men uh, rather than completely assist in the uh, idea of revolt or the idea of revolution. And there's a uh, kind of the, the finest example I found of this was uh, relates to the ring shout where uh, the Mama Wa- Mami Wata ritual, which goes by different names, but the Mami Wata ritual is an African ritual uh, based on water spirits, uh, especially um, in West Africa. And water spirits are important throughout the Atlantic world. Uh, dolphins, mermaids, mm-hmm. um, porpoises are considered highly spiritual in a lot of African ethnic cultures that made it across uh, the Middle Passage. And the Mami Wato ritual that uh, I discovered involved extreme use of sense of smell, where a uh, the ring shout would involve a, a uh, obey a woman in this case, obey a man or obey a woman. In this case, it would obey a woman who would go around the ring that was shouting and she'd smell out who the poisoner was or who the evil actor was in the slave society. So smell becomes a way to uh, medicate uh, slaves. Smell becomes important in the creation of herbal concoctions for medication because white masters aren't really providing the medical care necess- mm-hmm. necessary. Um, they're providing some medical care because they don't want to lose their product, but uh, the medical care is never enough. Um, so you have herbal concoctions develop, especially in the Caribbean and South America. Uh, you have ideas of the Nkisi uh, from the Congo, which is uh, kind of a spiritual object that also could often smell, um, had synesthetic powers in the olfactory that was used against masters kind of in a spiritual manner. It was often placed on, on doorsteps of masters um, as a spiritual threat. Um, there's all, all these examples. There's hundreds and hundreds of examples where smell is important to African cultures mm-hmm. during the slave trade in a way that it is not within Western European cultures. Western European cultures during this time are trying to degrade the sense of smell. They're trying to remove smell from mm-hmm. prominence because smell is considered extremely subjective, whereas the uh, higher senses of uh, especially sight is considered to be truth, mm-hmm. considered to be completely objective. Um, when It's not, of course, but at that time during the early enlightenment, you had sight becoming this extremely objective idea. True sight is truth um, versus the idea of the lower senses, which are completely subjective and cannot be replicated and therefore are not scientific. They don't have scientific replicability. So as Western Europe degrades the sense of smell, tries to remove the sense of smell from their uh, aesthetic world, Africans are trying to retain that and slaves especially are working to retain that as important for uh, forms of resistance, forms of everyday resistance. So most of your sources mostly deal with the British Atlantic, English Atlantic. And I know obviously this is, you have to have some limitations in your work, but I'm wondering if you encountered other sources of this both dialectical consciousness and real consciousness of this process happening in other imperial realms as well. Yeah, uh, I, I consider this a Western European wide phenomenon. There's, uh, I found sources in, in uh, every language of the major Western European slave traders that in, mm-hmm. involved this type of smelling, this type of false consciousness of smelling. One of the examples I use in the book is uh, from Monsieur Duprat's, uh, who's in Louisiana, uh, French Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And he's writing about uh, a, a, just a diatribe about how you have to construct your plantation in certain manners to avoid winds blowing from the stinking slave dens because the slaves smell bad, not because of you work them hard. So they smell bad. No, because they actually smell bad mm-hmm. to you have to construct your plantation a certain way. So those winds don't blow on your crops or those winds don't blow towards the master's house. And he's talking about thick planks and, uh, and other um, aspects needed to, and constant bathing to try and limit this smell. And he's talking, and he talks about different groups, uh, different African ethnic groups as smelling differently from other different Af- African ethnic groups. So those should be the ones you purchase. The ones that smell better should be the ones that you purchase. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a phenomenon that builds on itself and just keeps building and building and snowballing into this mm-hmm. entire scientific structure that 
because it relies on itself, because it relies on its own internal logic, it can just keep building and building and building. Mm -hmm. And you have um, French, you have, especially in South America, uh, you have uh, wondrous uh, words, uh, Katinga and Badudum are words in uh, Portuguese, which I couldn't trace exactly to kind of a meaning at the time. But in essence, they're talking about um, the smell of the female African slave and kind of how that is uh, almost Jezebel-like bringing masters to want to rape uh, Mm -hmm. slaves more. Um, So this is, it's a multinational Mm -hmm. and and constant uh, growing field of scientific belief and cultural belief for about 400 years and still today exists kind of in the, in the, in the racialist subcultures of today, this still exists. I mean, uh, there's a famous speech uh, uh, before he became president uh, of France. Jean Chirac had a famous speech about um, the smell of African, of North African immigrants living in, in Paris. And he's talking about how they, the food they smell, but also how their bodies smelled kind of uh, in which he's just then he's using that to justify removing removing welfare protections. So this is this is something that still exists in the in the bowels of the internet is the term I use kind of deep in the bowels of the internet, but also in kind of political discussions. Definitely, and and so related to that building that and that, and that process that it continues to exist, your conclu- your conclusion moves us from the early modern Atlantic to specifically 19th century America. And I'm wondering if you could speak more about how this olfactor racism manifested itself before and after the Civil War in the United States. Yeah, so prior to the Civil War, it becomes, um, I'd say that's when it's at its most potent. That's when it's at its most uh, virulent. It involves monogenetic traditions. It involves monogenetic traditions uh, related to something called the Curse of Ham. Uh, mm-hmm. where Ham's son, Canaan, is cursed to be black forever um, by God because he saw Noah's naked body and talked about it. Um, and that, uh, that attributes to uh, smell. There's many writers who talk about related to the smell of, mm-hmm. of Canaan. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, of course, writes in notes on the state of Virginia about how African bodies smell differently because they secrete less by the kidneys. It's becoming this, this pseudoscience that has so much deep logic in the epistolary cultures of the Atlantic world that it's just becomes believed without even thought, without even thinking this becomes believed. You have Jefferson writing about it. You have even an abolitionist like Benjamin Rush. He's writing many tracks about why African bodies smell differently. He's talking, he's comparing um, the leprous limbs of uh, people uh, suffering from leprosy, which turn black and smell. He says, well, that's why Africans are black because of an ancient leprosy turned their skin black. And that's why they retain that sense of smell. So you have even abolitionists like Rush um, talking about this. And then what, what really fascinated me was how this turned de- into deep literature around the time of the nullification crisis, where you have these two d- dystopias uh, written, one by a guy named Jerome Holgate. Uh, he goes by the pseudonym Oliver Ballokitten. And he writes, and he writes this dystopia about what would happen if slavery ended. And it's the whole thing is about the sense of smell, about how white noses would be invaded by black smells. And the most uh, effusive scene, the most kind of determinant scene that shows his hatred is there's a preacher giving his sermon about kind of um, black bodies and white bodies should mate and we should all uh, love each other and all these positive things. And an African uh, woman walks into the, to the, uh, to the church and everyone starts vomiting. Uh, the, the preacher has to hold lavender during his sermon. He has to hold lavender vials up to his nose. So they, he doesn't start vomiting all the time. And when the African woman comes in, the, the parishioners start vomiting over each other because of the smell. The smell is so intense. And in this dystopia, uh, white, People drink certain things that make their sense of smell go away. They have uh, their nose, their nose hairs picked out. Hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's this whole, it's this ridiculous conception that you'd have to create a culture devoid of smell or willing to trick itself that the smell doesn't exist um, because 
of the, the, need, the desire to bring Africans and white people together. Um, the other, mm-hmm. uh, the other dystopia is a lot more, uh, obscure. It's by a pseudonym Cephas Broadluck. Uh, uh, the author's name is Alan Gazlay. It's much more obscure, but it's very similar. It's talking about how there's this other world uh, called Grubland. And in Grubland, um, the grub master is telling everyone to remove their sense of smell because, uh, because they're holding the black statue. And that essentially is a frame for the abolitionists that the abolitionists are holding the black statue and that all other people have to remove their sense of smell because that's going to allow them to become less racist if they remove their sense of smell. But of course, these dystopian writers, both Holgate and Gaslay, are defending the sense of smell as a deeply biological sense that sense threats. So the threat is, in this sense, the black person. These dystopias then are saying, if you remove the sense of smell or our ability to um, detect other races, or if you essentially remove our racism, then we will not be able to detect threats, essentially is the argument. And this, I mean, this persists not just in literature, it goes to, um, it's, it's part of the Dred Scott case. In the Dred Scott case, mm. you have a, it's not an amicus brief, amicus briefs come later, but it's a, it's a, alongside the, uh, the ruling is a um, uh, writings from Samuel Cartwright, who was a physician who he came up with the idea of drapedomania, uh, which is a disease of slaves um, where they want to run away, which is also an absurdity. But he also prov- he provides that uh, slaves smell bad. It makes women in the slave community uh, go crazy when black uh, black men dance. And because of that, we can't give citizenship. I mean, this is the, the mm-hmm. case that's determining mm-hmm. citizenship prior to the civil war, mm-hmm. the, the lone case determining citizenship. And it's partially defended on the, on the idea that black bodies smell differently. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and this, I mean, these are, and these become kind of the civil war um, does not change much of the racial rhetoric, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, it, in many ways it, it, it intensifies it uh, reconstruction, intensifies it where you have um, minstrelsy, uh, just horrible minstrel songs about um, just the smell of the black body and why that means that they're not, I mean, mm-hmm. just all, all the same tropes that the black body smells. So it's more like an animal. So it can't take care of itself. What's it going to do now that slavery has gone? And that's what these stupid, ridiculous minstrel songs are about. And it, it continues and it grows and grows. You have Plessy versus Ferguson which in part is, is uh, I didn't uh, discover this. Uh, Mark Smith uh, discovered this, mm-hmm. that uh, Plessy versus Ferguson is there's uh, things in the case where Plessy, he's trying to pass. It's a test case, uh, civil rights test case. So he's trying to pass on a white uh, rail or not, a white car, uh, not mm-hmm. rail car. Uh, and he is, a, he's Octoroon. He's one, one eighth. And so he, he's not, uh, in the in the courtroom, the test case isn't holding up because he looks too white. They say, "Oh, well, no, we can rely on other things than just sight. We can rely on how how bad he smells." That's how we that's how we knew he was black in order to throw him off the uh, the car because we could smell how black he was. All right. So this happened before the Civil War, after Civil War, and continues and continues and continues. I mean, definitely, definitely. So so some listeners might be aware of the quote-unquote chicken and egg debate in the historiography of slavery studies, which is a debate in broad terms that tries to pinpoint if an idea of race or racism came before or after European enslavement of people of African descent. So in your work, um, do you consider olfactory racism coming before or after the Atlantic slave tree and African slavery, or is it sort of a mix of both and a mutually reinforcing process? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the origins debate is a, it's a stopgap in a lot of ways to a lot of deeper discussion in my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, the origins debate basically centers in Virginia. What came first, uh, race or slavery? That's mm-hmm. kind of the, where the origins debate settles. Um, of course, there's other aspects of um, Atlantic world that are involved. And that's partly the issue that the origins debate is extremely parochial. It's talking about a very specific legal culture in Mm -hmm. Virginia in the 17th century, about what came first race or slavery. 
in my mind, uh, it's mutually reinforcing. You are right there. Mm-hmm. But the main thing that's being missed when we talk about the origins debate is capitalism. Mm-hmm. And when you throw capitalism in, it's constructing, it's, it's also mutually reinforcing race mm-hmm. and slavery. Capitalism mm-hmm. functions, the superstructure functions on divide and conquer. So capitalism, as it's emerging in these very early forms in the 16th and 17th century, it's still capitalism. It's not Adam Smith capitalism, but it's still forms of capitalism in the 16th and 17th century. It's creating ideas of race. It's creating the system of slavery. So really, if, if out of those three, if one had to be the force, it's capitalism first, mm-hmm. then race, then slavery. But really, they're all as kind of the uh, first chapter and then into the second chapter states, it's none, none really comes first. There's mm-hmm. so many different regions. There's so many different uh, groupings of people and na- national ideas about slavery. I mean, Tannenbaum thesis about slavery in Spanish, mm-hmm. uh, Spanish and Portuguese um, regions. So it's impossible to put the origins debate onto any one, uh, na- uh, one idea of the Atlantic world. But in my mind, what's being missed generally in that debate is capitalism. That capitalism is the driving force that constructs the structures of the Atlantic slave trade mm-hmm. and constructs modern forms of racism. Mm-hmm. In in your conclusion, you I think have and throughout your book, you have a lot of messages and relevances for today. Um, what do you think are, are some of the lessons that readers can take from this? Um, and, and what do you hope is the reaction, um, and response from, from those readers? Um, this book for, for modern sensibilities is about discourse manipulation. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, maybe 1930s Germany, um, I hate to be hyperbolic, but I don't think there's been more of a time for discourse manipulation in the world than at this moment, mm-hmm. uh, not, not just from, uh, political leadership, but from, um, populists from all over the world. You have this massive ideas of discourse manipulation and discourse manipulation is not just about the way we think. It's not just about changing the way we think or the way um, we vote. Discourse Mm -hmm. manipulation can get into our bodies. It can get so deep into our minds. It can get so deep into our alligator brain, the Mm -hmm. deepest recesses of our brain that it can alter what we see. It can alter what we feel. It can alter how we smell, how we taste, mm-hmm. and what we hear. Mm-hmm. It, 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 and those ways of sensing can be altered by language and not simply language and kind of the sense of words, but language and the sense of texts and symbols. Um, those forms can alter the very function of our body. So when you have someone uh, calling other nations shithole nations, mm-hmm. um, that is a very olfactory idea that goes back through this whole process, this, this whole process of believing that these nations smell differently, um, but calling something shithole or Chirac, uh, mm-hmm. talking about uh, the smell of North African immigrants mm-hmm. or even the rivers of blood speech, uh, Enoch Powell's rivers of blood speech in, uh, in England, in the base of the uh, base of the Brexit mo- or kind of a much earlier speech mm-hmm. that became the base of the Brexit movement. It's this anti-immigration, anti-other society, this kind of fascist racism that's developing. And it can, it's not just words. It's not just words that have to be overcome. Mm-hmm. It is, it's bodies that alter. People's bodies become altered by racism mm-hmm. to where someone might, a racist might walk to the other side of the street because their body feels them, feels, I feel disgusted by walking by this person. I'm smelling them. I'm hearing how they talk. I'm hearing their music. I'm hearing other things. I'm seeing their clothing. That be, and it's not just the thought of that. It's that the thought becomes embodied and then the embodiment creates a reaction of disgust. So in a lot of ways, scholars have to look at for deconstructing racism in the world, which be, to become anti-racist, uh, um, it's not so simple as just to say these people, these racists, these racialists are reading the wrong things. They don't know what they're reading because th- there's generational embodiment from their fathers, from their grandfathers, generational embodiment about how to deal with other races. And be, and it's not knowledge. It is, it is body knowledge. It's tacit knowledge that has entered into a subconscious that, that has to be deconstructed in different forms than simply saying, 
um, this is not a learned person, right? Or this person doesn't understand race. It's mm-hmm. something so deeply ingrained that scholars have to come to. How do you talk mm-hmm. to someone when it's so deeply ingrained in their body to not be racist? Mm-hmm. How do you tell, how do you educate anti-racism when race is embodied in the racist body? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think it certainly offers a lot of uh, prescient lessons for today, hard lessons for today, and I hope that readers will will understand those those lessons and and uh, act in the future in positive positive ways. So finally, um, we always like to ask a guest what they are planning to do next, what they're researching next. Any uh, projects on the horizon for you? Um, in this day and age, as you probably know, as a grad student, mm-hmm. um, you need about 10 projects to get hired. <laughs> so I have uh, many projects. I just published an article on um, the meanings of sulfur and the smell of sulfur as it changed over time, how ideas of uh, sulfur related to demons and related to witches and related to hell had to fade because energy conglomerates needed sulfur smell to be a positive thing. And that's mm-hmm. generally what happened in, the, in 19th century Britain. Sulfur becomes this positive smell. Smelling sulfur is thought to be clean, be cleanly and help people and, and all these things. But it had previously been considered hellish. And then in the future now, it's considered, of course, to be cause cancer. And it's, mm-hmm. it's a horrible, horrible uh, toxin. Um, I have another project with a co-author on history of cattle in the Atlantic world. Um, how, and talking about animal agency, how cattle thought their actions and those actions actually change the development of uh, Atlantic structures within uh, Jamaica, especially and in uh, and in Haiti. Um, so yeah, you have to have mm-hmm. many projects. My second book uh, will, will most likely be on the idea of accelerationism, mm-hmm. um, which isn't that really it's not really a historical idea, but it's the idea that um, Marxists uh, believe some Marxists believe that you can accelerate capitalism uh, to a bubble, into a great bubble that bursts. And when that bubble bursts, uh, new forms of society can emerge, new forms of society like communism or anarchism mm-hmm. or anarcho-syndicalism. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in that type of accelerationism. I think uh, COVID-19 has shown us that accelerationism just leads to death and mm-hmm. despair because capitalism is so powerful and the superstructure can manipulate so much. There has to be other tactics to get at the superstructure than simply trying to outrun it. Because it seems to me you cannot outrun um, a force like the superstructure that can change the very function of your body. Mm-hmm. Well, we're looking forward to seeing those works in print. Um, thank you very much, Dr. Kettler, for your time today and for this really engaging and enlightening discussion. Um, the Smell of Slavery, Olfactory Racism in the Atlantic World is out now via Cambridge University Press. And for the audience out there, this is Grant Kleiser saying thank you and see you next time. Appreciate you listening. love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 